little trivia question to start out. Who was the first man to walk on the moon? You've got that, don't you? Neil Armstrong. Do you remember the year, or even more specifically, the date that he walked on the moon? What would you guess the year? It was 1969, July the 21st, 1969. Neil Armstrong, first man to step foot on the moon. The reason I bring that up is I remember, and this is, this is more obscure, but I actually remember it. I remember President Nixon called the astronauts from the Oval Office. He called them on the surface of the moon and congratulated them on what they had done. And he, but he said something that brought forth immediate criticism. He said what those men had done, what was happening right then, was the most significant event in human history. Well, the critics began to pile on, and I think rightfully so. There have been lots of things that happened in the history of the world more important than men walking on the moon. And so I think the critics of the president were right to criticize him for having said that. Uh, that was not the most important event in history by any stretch of the imagination. Tonight, though, we are going to talk about what I believe certainly is the most important event in human history. Tonight, we want to conclude our three-part study by talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked about his trials. We talked about the crucifixion. And now we want to talk about the resurrection. I really do believe that it is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Now, uh, why is it so important? Well, I believe it's important because if we can prove that it happened, then we have good reason to believe everything else that the Bible says. I remember years ago, an elder in the church in another place uh, explained, he said, do you know why I believe the story of Noah and the flood? Do you know why I believe that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days? Uh, do you, you know, and then he just mentioned several other Bible stories. You know, you know why I want, you, you know why I believe the story of Jonah and the flood? He said the answer to all those, I believe all those things because Jesus resurrected from the dead. If you can prove that Jesus resurrected from the dead, then everything else in the Bible stands as proven. It has to be so. On the other hand, and we've made this point before, and I think it's a true point, you take away the resurrection. Let everything else stand that the Bible discusses but take the resurrection away, the rest of it doesn't matter. You might as well throw your Bible away. It, all, it could all be true, but if the resurrection wasn't there, then it's worthless. And so that's just how important the resurrection is. It's certainly an important event in history. It's very important. It's ultimately important to our faith. We want to talk about the resurrection tonight and the positive proof we have that Jesus truly was resurrected from the dead. We thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate all those who are present we have visitors. We're glad you've come. We want you to come again and again. Please make it a, a, a regular trip to come visit us at College View. If you have questions about our work, our worship, or anything we're doing here at College View, we want you to ask those questions so we can explain. We'll try to give you a thus saith the Lord, a book, chapter, and verse answer for why we're doing things the way we are. Now, we hope that makes sense. We hope we're right. If you, We'd love to, to explain those things to you. If you happen to disagree, we'd be glad to study with you about that, too. Uh, we're just trying hard to do what God wants us to do as recorded in the Scriptures. Thanks for being here tonight. Let's talk about the resurrection, and let's talk about the evidence that the resurrection actually took place. First of all, the thing that we can say without any shadow of a doubt is that on that first day of the week, where Hunter was reading for us earlier, uh, as, as the 
the, some of the women went out to the tomb to, to, they actually went out there to anoint the body of Jesus with additional spices, but when they went there, they found the tomb was empty. And so we know that the disciples of Jesus agreed that the tomb was empty. All the disciples came immediately to understand that the tomb of Jesus was empty. But what's interesting is that it wasn't only the Jews, the, the disciples of Jesus, but both the Jews and the Romans admitted that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Do you, do you remember? Did you re- listen to what Hunter was reading for us earlier? We won't take time to read that again tonight. But those Roman guards at the tomb went to the Jewish rulers and told them the body is gone. Remember? The Jewish rulers didn't argue that the tomb was empty. The, the Roman soldier said the tomb is empty. The Jewish rulers accepted that the tomb was empty. And actually, if they wanted to check it out for themselves, just a very short walk outside the walls of Jerusalem would have proven it. But the fact of the matter is, everybody agreed the tomb was empty. And so we definitely have an empty tomb. Paul Meyer, uh, we quoted him this morning, a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, wrote uh, a, an article called The Empty Tomb as History. And here's what he said. He said, the fact that the Jews and the Romans admitted the tomb was empty, he said, this is positive evidence from a hostile source, which is the strongest kind of historical evidence. In essence, this means that if a source admits a fact decidedly not in its own favor, then that fact is genuine. Do you get the point that he's making there? If you're forced to admit something that you really don't want to admit, if you're forced to admit something that actually is not in your favor, but you admit it anyway then that establishes that fact as being true, right? In a court of law, for instance, we've used this illustration before, but you remember in a court of law, what if what if Monty here was put on trial for murder? Now, he's denying that he committed murder, but the prosecuting attorney brings out a gun, and he holds it up, and he says, this is the gun that killed the man who was murdered. And I want to know, Mr. Monty, is this your gun? Well... Monty knows it's his gun, right? It's got a serial number on it and all that, and it's all very traceable to him. There's really no use denying, because they know it's his gun. He knows it's his gun. This is a bad spot to be in, but he has to admit, yeah, that's my gun. But he tries to extend the story, and the guy won't let him talk anymore. Ah, that's all we want to hear. Yes or no? Is this your gun? So when Monty, who's on trial for murder, even though he denies he committed murder, when he has to admit that the murder weapon is his gun then there's no doubt about it, right? We don't even have to talk about it anymore. It is fully established as fact. When somebody admits something not in their own interest, then it's fully established as fact. And that's what the, the Jews and the Romans did right here. Uh, let me see if I can get that centered on the screen just a little bit better. That's what the Jews and the Romans did right here. They had to admit that the tomb was empty. Therefore, we have no reason to believe otherwise. Um, Ron Sider, in a book called... A Case for Easter, which I think is a phony uh, title for this study. But he said, if the Christians and their Jewish opponents both agreed that the tomb was empty, we have little choice but to accept the empty tomb as a historical fact. And so, again, one of the things we know, absolutely without doubt, is that the tomb where they buried Jesus was empty on that first day of the week. In addition to that, we have strong evidence in the form of eyewitness testimony. You know, eyewitness testimony is very important in any court of law, and it's certainly important in this study as well. When you're bringing out eyewitnesses to prove a case, the number of witnesses is significant. 
For instance, we'll go back to Monty on trial for murder. If we were able to bring forth one witness who said, I saw Monty, I saw him shoot that man, that'd be powerful evidence in a court of law, right? I mean, in fact, we, we've, it's almost an open and shut case if you've got one eyewitness who'll give that testimony. What if you had two witnesses and their testimony was concurrent, they agreed? Two witnesses said they saw Monty do it. It's, it's, it's a done deal, right? You got three witnesses and they all agree? We're going to throw money under the jailhouse. We got him, right? He's convicted. If you've got three eyewitnesses. Now, what we're saying is the multiplicity of witnesses, the more you got, the better it is. Now, of course, in the case of Jesus, we have not one, two, three. We don't have a dozen. We don't have 20. We don't have 50. We don't have 100. We've got more than 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 3? He said, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Notice, more than 500 people saw him at, on one occasion. More than 500 people saw him resurrected from the dead. And I think the Apostle Paul makes a, a strong case here. He says, most of these people are still alive. Most of those 500. Now, there, there are a few who have died since that time. But most of them are still alive. By the way, 1 Corinthians was a very early epistle in the New Testament, one of the earliest writings that's recorded for us in the New Testament. In between the time that Jesus resurrected and was seen by these eyewitnesses and the time 1 Corinthians was written was not a long, terribly long span of time. He said a few of those eyewitnesses have died, but most are still alive. Go ask them yourself if you want to ask them, is basically the argument that Paul is making here. And so just an abundance of eyewitness testimony. Uh, we could say more, but we'll just leave it at that. Let me give you a quick rundown of those who saw Jesus resurrected. Early on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene near the tomb. On Sunday morning, to several women returning from the tomb. On that same day, to Peter. Later that day, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. At evening, on the same Sunday that he arose, to all the apostles except Thomas. One week later, to all the apostles, including Thomas, to seven disciples fishing on the Sea of Galilee, to eleven disciples on a mountain in Galilee, to above five hundred brethren at once, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, to James only, to all the apostles at the ascension on the Mount of Olives, and finally to Saul of Tarsus, as is recorded in Acts chapter 9. Just an abundance of appearances and hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus resurrected. And so... When you, when you consider all of that eyewitness testimony, it serves as a powerful proof that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. Um, Merrill Tinney wrote about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a book called Prophecy in the Making. And he said, it's noteworthy that of these appear, none of these appear, let me start over. It is noteworthy that these appearances are not stereotyped. No two of them are exactly alike. The appearance to Mary Magdalene occurred in the early morning, that to the travelers to Emmaus in the afternoon, and to the apostles in the evening, probably after dark. He appeared to Mary in the open air. Mary was alone when she saw him. The disciples were together in a group. 
Paul records that on one occasion he appeared to more than 500 at one time. The reactions were also varied. Mary was overwhelmed with emotions. The disciples were frightened. Thomas was obstinately incredulous when told of the Lord's resurrection, but worshipped him when he manifested himself. Each occasion had its own peculiar atmosphere and characteristics and revealed some different quality of the risen Lord. So we'll just leave it at that to say we have an overwhelming abundance of eyewitness testimony concerning the resurrection. Now, is that where we stop? We know the tomb was empty, and we've got people who said they saw Jesus. Is that all the proof that we've got? I actually think no. I think we could add to this what we would call circumstantial evidence. Do you understand circumstantial evidence? The dictionary says that circumstantial evidence is, quote, proof of facts offered as evidence from which other facts are to be inferred. In other words, we've got some facts... It's not, it's not necessarily exactly saying that Jesus resurrected, but we've got some facts that strongly imply that the resurrection must be true. In a court of law, circumstantial evidence is admissible, and if you've got enough of it, you can draw a convicting conclusion from circumstantial evidence. It, it happens all the time in various trials, murder trials and so forth, where a person, uh, maybe there were no eyewitnesses, no one saw it actually happen, but if you can put together a case, if you can establish a motive, for instance, and, and get all the other circumstances lined up, you can convince a jury to convict a person even though no one actually saw the event happen. Circumstantial evidence can be strong. Some legal experts say that circumstantial evidence is, in a way, stronger than hard evidence because it's, it's more difficult to fabricate. You, know, you, could, you could fabricate some hard evidence, but you can't fabricate some circumstantial evidence that might come forward. What about circumstantial evidence of the resurrection? Let me suggest just some things. For instance, the church. The church, we know, established remarkable growth early on. Where did it all start? In Jerusalem, right? Thousands of people were initially converted right there in Jerusalem, right where all these events took place. Now, if the resurrection was a, was a fake... If it was a fraud that people were trying to perpetrate upon the public, Jerusalem wouldn't have been the place to try to start that. You might have tried to go to Athens or Rome or Corinth or some other major metropolitan area, but don't go right there in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem it's easy for people to check out the facts. It's easy for people to question the eyewitnesses. It's easy for people to walk out there and view that tomb. Don't start it in Jerusalem if it's not true, but this started in Jerusalem. And thousands of people were converted right there in Jerusalem. That's a bit of circumstantial evidence in support of the reality of the resurrection. I'll tell you another piece of circumstantial evidence, and that's baptism as was practiced in the early church. What is baptism symbolic of? Well, baptism is symbolic, according to Romans 6, verses 3 through 6, it's symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But take away the resurrection... And that symbolism just completely falls apart, right? Doesn't make any sense at all. But Christians from the first century and to this day practice baptism as a symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It only makes sense if the resurrection happened. Talk about the Lord's Supper. Every first day of the week we observe the Lord's Supper. It celebrates the terrible death, but the overcoming victory of Jesus in his resurrection. I'll tell you, there's no reason for us to observe the Lord's Supper if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. This observance, of course, started back then 
at the time, at the very time, Jesus, just before his death, instituted it, and Christians ever since have observed it on the first day of the week, but it makes no sense to celebrate that if the resurrection didn't happen. You see that? And then, of course, I, what I think is by far and away the strongest evidence of the resurrection is the changed lives of the people who saw him. Now, again, this is sort of circumstantial, but it verifies that these eyewitnesses actually saw what they claimed to see. Let me give you some examples. What about Jesus' own blood brothers, his own fleshly brothers? In John 7, verse 5, it says, Neither did his brethren believe in him. It's talking about his physical brothers, the other sons of Mary. They didn't believe in him. I've thought, you know, that... That's probably not too surprising. You know, uh, I've got a brother, and he happens to be an older brother. But if somebody came along and tried to tell me that my brother was somebody extra special, I'd say, what? You've got to be kidding my brother? I grew up, we used to fight all the time. He, you know, we used to argue and fuss with one. Hey, that's my brother. You can't, you can't get me to believe that he's somebody special. I've known him all my life. Can you imagine how it would be hard for the brothers of Jesus to believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God? I, I think I can understand why it would be hard for them to accept it. And they didn't believe. But they changed after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, beginning verse 13, the disciples were gathered there in Jerusalem waiting as Jesus had told them to wait. Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James... These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. What, what changed his brethren to become believers? They didn't believe before. Why do they believe now? The resurrection from the dead. Uh, I think that's compelling proof that the resurrection really happened. What about the, all the disciples? Remember this morning, we read Matthew 26, verse 56. It said, all the disciples forsook him and fled. I think a fair description of those disciples of Jesus, when Jesus was arrested and they took him and they're going to crucify him and all of his disciples just scattered, would, would it be too harsh to say that they were cowards and deserters at that point? That's exactly what they were, right? They were cowards and deserters. But not too many weeks later, in Acts chapter 4, the Jewish rulers, the same Jewish rulers that had Jesus crucified, the Jewish, Jewish rulers called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What's the, what happened? What happened between there and there? The resurrection. Huh? And it changed them from being cowardly deserters to Old proclaimers of the truth, and they said, basically, you can do anything you want to to us, but we're going to keep telling this story. We have to tell what we have seen. Here's a little chart that you may have seen before. We've used it before. Talking about all the disciples. They, they all had been deserters, according to Matthew 26, 56, but history records that they all died violent deaths for the cause of Christ, uh, with the exception of John. Uh, we have reference, for instance, to James being beheaded at Jerusalem. History records the story of most others and claims that they all died as martyrs for the cause of Christ. What changed them from cowards to martyrs? They saw the resurrection with their own eyes. They knew that it had happened and they were changed. And, of course, the conversion of the Apostle Paul is perhaps the most 
a powerful proof of a changed life. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a persecutor and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly on belief. Paul talked about how he had persecuted the church, but he changed. What changed him? He saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus, and it changed him. And so we have that strong circumstantial evidence of the changed lives of those men. So, we got the empty tomb, uh, we got the eyewitness testimony, and we got several bits of circumstantial evidence that all argue to prove the resurrection. To hurry up, I want to go to a final chart here. This chart uh, was suggested in a book by Josh McDowell called The Resurrection Factor, and in it he he basically tries to prove the resurrection by process of elimination. I think it's kind of an interesting exercise. Let's walk through it real quickly. When it comes to the tomb of Jesus, you've got two options, right? Either the tomb where they buried you. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus from the cross, put it in his own tomb. On that first day of the week, there's only two things that could be true about the tomb where Jesus was buried. Either the tomb was still occupied by his body or the tomb was empty, right? What, what other choices would you have? Either Jesus' tomb was empty or it wasn't. Well, let's say that the body was still there. What would be some possible explanations? In other words, he never came out of that tomb. They put him in that tomb and he stayed there. His corpse rotted and his bones remained in that tomb where they buried him. The tomb was still occupied, it's argued. He never came forth from the tomb. That's just a tale. Some argue that Jesus was buried in an unknown tomb. They say, you know, the whole story of Jesus being buried in a tomb and then they went back to the tomb and found it. Skeptics argue that couldn't have been because the fact of the matter is that, that victims of crucifixion weren't buried. They were just cut down from their crosses and left there for the wild dogs to devour their flesh. At best, it's argued, they might have been thrown into a mass grave, but there would be no way of going to a specific tomb and saying Jesus was in there and now he's not. Well, we know that that criticism fails. Remember that archaeological discovery that we talked about in our lesson this morning? They found in a tomb near Jerusalem, just recently, not too many years ago, they found in a tomb the skeletal remains of a man in a family tomb who had been crucified. They knew he was crucified because the, the nail was still in his leg bones, through his ankles, where he'd been nailed to his cross. They knew he was a crucifixion victim. But there's a crucifixion victim that was buried in an actual tomb, a family tomb, a family burying place near Jerusalem. So, the argument that crucifixion victims were never buried, therefore Jesus would never have been buried, that doesn't stand. Archaeological evidence proves that that explanation doesn't work. Some people argue that what happened was that the women went back out there, but they forgot where Jesus was buried, and they went to an empty tomb. In other words, here's the tomb of Jesus over here. It's still got his body in it. The women forgot where they were going, and they went to a place not far away, but there was another tomb in that same vicinity, and it was an open tomb because nobody had been buried in it. Yeah, it was empty, but it wasn't the tomb where Jesus was. The tomb where Jesus was was over here, and it was still occupied by his body. Well, of course, the problem uh, with that explanation is that it blatantly ignores the evidence of the recorded narrative that Hunter read for us earlier from Matthew 28. Uh, 
remember, the women found the empty tomb and the soldiers rushed into town to tell the Jewish leaders that the tomb is empty. Everybody agreed about that empty tomb. What's the chances that you could bury a loved one in a matter of just, you know, a few hours, forget where you buried that loved one? That, that would have to be the case for those women, right? They observed where he was buried. They went home and observed the Sabbath. Early the first day of the week, they came back. They couldn't remember where it was. Not very likely. But, of course, it wasn't so. We know that, the, as we already said, the Jewish rulers and the Romans agreed that the tomb was empty. Some people argue that the idea of a resurrection, an empty tomb and a resurrection, is just a, a legend that developed over a long period of time. It's sort of like a Paul Bunyan story. Remember those old Paul Bunyan stories about the, the lumberjack and his great blue ox and uh, uh, how every time you told a story, you purposefully exaggerated the story and made it bigger. You know, it just gets bigger and bigger. Some people argue that that's what you've got. Some skeptics argue that's what you've got with Jesus. The resurrection story. That Back in the first century and for several centuries thereafter, they never talked about a resurrection, didn't even know of a resurrection or believe in a resurrection. That's a tall tale that people started telling several centuries after Christ. But it's an exaggerated legend. It's not a true fact. That's the criticism that's offered. But of course, that's not true because, as we said earlier, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 spoke of those eyewitnesses. You remember what he said? Most of them are still alive. A few have died, but most are still living. You go ask them if you're, yourself. The story of the resurrection was circulated within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who gave their testimony. It wasn't a legend that developed over centuries. It was a, it was a, a true story told immediately upon the happening of it. It was no legend. Some skeptics say, well, the tomb where Jesus was remained occupied. His body never came out of the tomb where they buried him. What actually happened was sort of a spiritual resurrection. Uh, his disciples only saw a spirit or a ghost. Actually, I think that's such a crazy suggestion. We're not supposed to believe in resurrection, but we're supposed to believe in ghosts. That doesn't make much sense, does it? But actually, that would not have been a resurrection uh, uh, as the Pharisees and Jews would have expected it. They expected a bodily resurrection. Uh, Actually, if it was just a spiritual vision that people saw, Jesus would have been no different than some others from Old Testament times. Can you think of some others from the Old Testament who, who appeared after their death in a spiritual visionary state? I can think of Samuel, Moses, Elijah, maybe others. Those come to mind real quickly. This was not just a spiritual resurrection or a vision that somebody saw. Remember, Jesus said, Touch me. Feel my hand. Put your, put your hand here where the nail went through. Jesus, and then he ate in their presence. Remember that? Jesus was bodily resurrected. Some of the skeptics will argue the tomb where Jesus was buried remained occupied. He was never resurrected. His body was there and it stayed there. What happened, they say, is that these people who claimed they saw Jesus had, just had hallucinations. They were, they, they were just hallucinated and imagined they saw Jesus. They didn't really see him. Now, think about that for a minute. Let's say that I'm the kind of person who has hallucinations. I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a little goofy up here and I, I, I get into certain fits and I have a hallucination. And it just so happens that Mike Johnson is too. He's nuts. You know, Mike. He's nuts too. He has hallucinations also. Okay? 
So I'm, I'm a, a, a person uh, of the emotionally disordered sort that has hallucinations, and so is Mike. What's the chances? Now, I mean, people have hallucinations. Nobody disputes that. But what's the chances that you could get me and Mike, and we simultaneously have the same hallucination, the same identical hallucination, at the same time and place, Mike and I happen to see the same... That's really not likely, right? Now, multiply that by 500. How could you get 500 people together at one time in one place? They are all, all of the sort that are prone to hallucinations and they all have the same hallucination at the same time. That never happened, would it? Actually, for the, for, the men, for the mentally disordered type of people who have hallucinations, hallucinations are based upon some expectation that those people have, either real or imagined. They imagine it because they're expecting it. The disciples weren't even expecting to see Jesus resurrected, right? This is the, the, the claim that the resurrection can be explained by hallucinations is just phony. It doesn't work. And so, what happens is then that we can eliminate, by process of elimination, we can eliminate this whole side of the chart. Any explanation that tries to say the body of Jesus remained in the tomb where he was buried, that tomb remained occupied, the body was still there, it never left there, any attempted explanation of that sort fails, right? Okay, so that leaves us with the only other option. The option that we already knew, the tomb of Jesus was empty, right? Now, the tomb of Jesus was empty, no doubt about that, but there's two possible explanations as to how it got empty. You've got possible natural explanations or a supernatural explanation. Again, process of elimination. Think of some explanations about how, natural explanations as to how the tomb became empty. Uh, one of the arguments that is made is that the tomb was empty because the disciples of Jesus stole the body away. You know how old that attempted explanation is? Well, it goes all the way back to that very first day, right? Isn't that what the Jewish rulers bribed the Roman soldiers to say? The disciples came while we were sleeping and stole his body away? Well, we don't have to go into a great lot of detail, but think about how almost, well, not just almost, think about how literally impossible that would have been. The disciples came and stole his body away. The Roman soldiers were sleeping. First of all, you got Roman soldiers more than one probably a whole guard squad of 16 men or more, they all fell asleep? Not likely. Roman soldiers highly disciplined. Not likely. But if they did fall asleep, then these disciples would have to sneak in there past those Roman guards sleeping. They'd have to roll that great stone out of the way that, that, that closed the mouth of the tomb. They'd have to go in and get the body of Jesus, pick up this dead weight, by the way, remember, they left the grave clothes behind. They took the time, we're supposed to believe, they took the time to unwrap the body and leave the grave clothes behind and then sneak out of there carrying this dead body, again, passing those Roman guards without waking them up. That whole story is just crazy, isn't it? It's just too much to believe. We could talk more about that. Uh, but uh, one historian said, that if that is the real explanation, that may constitute a re more remarkable story than the resurrection itself. Uh, maybe so. That, that couldn't be right. The, the, I'll tell you what else argues against this. If his disciples did steal the body, okay, so 
what they do? They went and stole the body of Jesus, and then they got together and conspired to tell the lie, He's resurrected. Okay? Maybe Peter stands up before the other apostles and says, i got an idea, men. Let's go steal the body of Jesus. We'll dispose of it somewhere. We'll start telling people that we saw Jesus resurrected. Because I think, Peter says, I think we can get rich and famous telling this story. And we can go on the public speaking tour. We'll get paid. People will pay us to tell our story. I think we could, I think we could strike it rich. And the other, the other disciples say, hmm, okay, we're in. We'll try it. So they steal the body of Jesus. I'm just, I'm just, you know, speculating here how this would go. They stole the body of Jesus and they started telling this story. But it, it begins to backfire. Instead of getting rich and famous, what do they get? They get persecuted, thrown in jail, and killed. It wouldn't take much of that before they would say, Hey, I don't know about you, Peter, but I think this scheme is not working. In fact, it's doing just the opposite. I'm out of here. I quit. Wouldn't they quit? If that's if they actually did that, wouldn't they quit telling the story when it began to bring persecution on their heads? But what did they do? They kept telling the story to the point of dying for the story. If they stole the body and they knew it, they would have quit telling that story a long time before they did. They never stopped telling it. They told it to the point of death. That that explanation, the stolen body, is just crazy. It doesn't work. Somebody, some skeptics have argued, well, yes, the tomb was empty, but what happened was the authorities moved the body of Jesus. They, they moved his body for safekeeping. So that when the disciples went out there on the first day of the week, they found an empty tomb because the authorities, using their heads, said, if we leave the body here, there may be some mischief, some foul play. Let's take the body and move it to a place of safekeeping. All right? If they did that, if the authorities did that, why didn't they bring the body out? You know, when, when the claims of the resurrection began to circulate, but the authorities know where the body is. These disciples are saying he's resurrected, empty tomb, resurrection. But the authorities have got the body over here in a safe place. You know, they could have, they could have stopped this in a heartbeat by simply dragging out the rotted corpse of Jesus and say, here's your Savior. Here's the guy you say was resurrected. We've had him all along. But they never did that, did they? They never, they, they would have if they could have, but they never did, proving that the authorities didn't move the body of Jesus. They didn't, they didn't have possession of his body. That is not a true story for sure. Have you ever heard of the swooned theory to explain away the resurrection? The swooned theory suggests that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He looked bad. I mean, he looked dead. Uh, I mean, he, he, his body was certainly very badly tortured. His breathing was incredibly shallow, probably almost undetectable. His, his pulse was almost non-existent, but he wasn't dead. They thought he was dead. They took him down from the cross. They put him in that tomb. In the cool of that tomb, he revived. And he got himself out of there. And then he began to claim he was resurrected when the fact of the matter is he never had died. Now think about that. We went to great lengths this morning to prove that there's no way that any person could have survived the torture that Jesus endured, the death that he experienced on the cross. Don't forget that Roman soldier threw his spear into the side of Jesus. No doubt about the fact that Jesus was dead. 
But just for sake of argument, think about it. Okay, let's, let's say that that story has merit. It doesn't, but just for sake of argument, let's say it does. They took Jesus down from the tomb, they put, and so they put him in the grave. But don't forget, before they put him in the grave, they wrapped him up in grave clothes. They, they tied him up, they bound him up in linen cloths packed together with gummy spices. We're supposed to believe that Jesus is in the tomb, in the dark of that tomb, this man who's been just mutilated and beaten to the point of death, we're supposed to believe he's able to fight himself out of those grave clothes. And then he has the strength to roll that great stone away from the tomb without disturbing the Roman guards who are outside and get out of there without any of them seeing him. You think that could possibly have happened? Of course, there's no way at all. That so-called swoon theory is, is very faulty. and no way that it could be true. Just to, just to illustrate the extremes to which people will go to try to explain away the resurrection. You, you may have heard a number of years ago there was a book written called The Passover Plot. Uh, a guy named Hugh Schoenfeld wrote a book called The Passover Plot. Man, this guy stayed up at nights trying to think up this scheme. He said... <coughs> Just a thumbnail sketch of what the book claimed. Jesus was sort of a megalomaniac. He really wanted people to think he was special, but he was just an average mortal man, they, he claimed. But he knew that if he, could, if he could deceive people into believing that he was resurrected, he could really assume the role of Messiah and, and have it made. So he took into his confidence Joseph of Arimathea. And the idea was that Jesus would get himself hung on the cross. That part of the plan came true. What he didn't anticipate, what he was, he, he, by some medicines, remember they tried to give him something to drink on the sponge while he was on the cross? The idea was they, that some medicine would be administered to him while he was hanging on the cross that would make him look dead. Joseph of Arathema would take him down. When the drug effect wore off, they'd bring Jesus out and say, here's, here's your resurrected Savior. Something bad happened that they did not foresee. That Roman soldier took his spear and thrust it in the side of Jesus and killed him. But Joseph of Arimathea, not to be undone, took the body down disposed of it. Then, a few days later, got an imposter to stand in for Jesus and say he was the one. All right? Like I said, that guy had to stay up late at night thinking of all that. But there's so many holes in that story. Um, it, it disregards so many parts of the true historical narrative. Uh, it doesn't account for how someone, either Jesus or this third person who ever came forth from a sealed tomb and escaped the eye of the Roman guards. But most incredibly, it assumes that all of those 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus could have mistaken an imposter for their true Lord and Master that they had known so well and loved so much. That's just a phony story to be sure. But that, I'm just mentioning that to illustrate to what extremes some people will go to try and explain away the resurrection. None of that works, right? So again, by process of elimination, we know that the idea that Jesus' body remained in the tomb, we can eliminate all those possibilities. By process of elimination, we can eliminate any natural explanation as to how Jesus' tomb became empty, by process of elimination, what does that leave us? It leaves us only with an empty tomb, empty because of a supernatural event. That event, of course, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the conclusion, the only reasonable conclusion, being 
He is the risen Savior. And so, we've got strong proof. We've got great reasons for faith and confidence in the Bible story of the resurrection. As we said at the outset, that is so critical, so fundamental to our faith. It has to be so, or we've got nothing. But, it is so. And the evidence is powerful, convincing, it's really overwhelming evidence that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, we have basis for hope that we too could be resurrected to an eternity in heaven with our Savior and with the Father. Are you ready to enjoy that eternity? Have you obeyed the gospel plan of salvation? We hope that you'll make that decision. If you're not a Christian already, we hope you make that decision without delay. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.